following teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. So, um, anyhow, this chapter we're in, I, you know, I, I texted Steve and Steve was keeping me up to date with, with y'all and, and the book. And <clears throat> this part of the chapter, you know, he texted me and I was going through it. And, and I mean, it is rich and it's, it's thick. And, and how many of y'all read that section? And if you didn't, that's totally cool. It, we could spend the whole summer on just these five or six sections. And as Steve and I have kept saying, we're, we're just praying that God shows us what we need to shine the light on. That's it. And if you don't have your favorite, I'm just going to hit a, two sections, honestly. If I don't hit your favorite section, forgive me. God used it in your life, and he's used it in mine, but I'm going to spotlight a couple of things. Um, if you don't have a book, that's okay. I've got the, some of the sections up here, and it's too small for you all to read probably, but I'm going to read some of that. But let me ask you a question. How many of you all deal with busyness? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. If you deal with busyness, raise your hand. and Keep it up. Keep it up. Now, keep it up if you love your life right now. You're dealing with busyness and you love your life right now. Keep it up. That's Okay, you can put them down now. That's, that's awesome. That's better than I thought because there are days that I feel like I'm too busy. And Steve and I have talked a little bit about this, and I've got another guy working with me on priorities, boundaries. Uh, Essentialism is a book. I don't know if you've heard it about it or read it, but... It's all about paring stuff down. But with Eldridge, listen to what he wrote here. He says, I know I was made for Eden. I know I don't have anything close to that every day. Most of the time, I just use busyness to cover up all the longings in my soul, create some distance between me and them. But then I notice I'm, I'm daydreaming about stuff. It, it comes back to what is there for my heart? And he says, I feel as if the way I live is just keeping life from going bad, spinning the plate, getting it done, keeping life from going bad. If I don't honor my obligations, wheels come off. My marriage won't be good. My job won't go well. I'll be laid off, whatever it is. That, that dynamic, I felt like in some ways was sort of a mirror for me. I've got four kids ranging from a junior in high school down to a fourth grader. And I, I'm, I'm here on staff, and I love my job. It's a great job, but it is a very, our church has a lot going on, and there's a lot to that. And there are a lot of men in the church, and so <clears throat> there's a lot of one-on-one -on -one conversations that are going to be had with men in the church. And all of that takes time, but as we discover, it also takes a discerning ear to know what do you say yes to and what do you say no to. Who do you walk with and, and who do you not? And so as I was reading this section, there was a question that, that God sort of put into my heart, and, and this is supposed to be symbolic of busyness, by the way. It's what I feel like some days. And the question was this, and I want you to talk about this around the table real quickly. Is my busyness, because most of us raised our hand on that, is my busyness about diversion or is it about devotion? Is my busyness about diversion from avoiding the things I need to really deal with, from avoiding uh, my relationship with Christ or 
his kingdom, what he's calling me to do, the, the greater yes of my life? Or is it, is it about avoiding that or is it about devotion to that? Is it about his kingdom? Is it about being the man that God's called me to be? And within that, he's just got me in a season that there is a lot of things that I'm needing to do. So talk around your table. If you don't know each other, introduce yourselves. Give you a few minutes to do that, and then we'll come back. This idea of busyness and the idea of, of where we go to find sort of comfort and where we go for diversion, a lot of times for, for Eldridge, he says this. He says, I don't think about having joy so much as just wanting to get free from pain or assault. And he says, there isn't much room for joy in endure. And that's the word that he felt like he was just enduring life, that he had pride in the fact that he could overcome obstacles, that his life, he had done that multiple times and he had pride in it. He says, I think there's a lot of unbelief behind endure, like my conviction that no one else is going to come through, so I have to. It also feels like Samson's downfall. We find a quality or a strength that helps us get through life and we make it our idol, put all our trust and hope in it. But once we make this strength or quality an idol and turn to it for security, it becomes our blind spot. And then a few paragraphs later, he says, it becomes our ruin. And for John Calvin and Hudson Taylor and A.W. Tozer and Francis Schaeffer and Tim Keller and lots of other uh, writers and pastors through the decades, They've mentioned this, and Calvin was the first that I found outside of the Bible. Calvin was the very first one to make this observation, and here's how he said it. He said, the human heart is an idol factory. An idol factory. I like to think of it as, you know, Paul said in Romans 1 that we are prone to worship the creation and not the creator, right? I mean, so you think about that, that is that true for me? You know, well, yeah, in, in a lot of ways it is. And, and sometimes it's not even creation. It's the creation of his creation that I worship, like technology. I, I think technology is awesome. I love it and what we can do with it. And sometimes I can be so fixated on the next thing coming that my relationships aren't where they need to be, my devotion to him. I'm, I'm really diverted. I'm not really devoted. And so, so in here, I love it. C.S. Lewis, you know, he, he tried to capture this idea that we have this infinite capacity to make idols. And he, he tried to argue rationally in mere Christianity to explain the Christian faith, but then also to explain things like, why will idolatry never satisfy us? And in the second, in the second letter there, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the, the, the letter I'm not going to worry about it right now. No, no, no. It's, it's mere Christianity. He gave like five addresses or whatever. And in the second address, it's like splendor or something. I can't remember the, name, the title of it. He says this, what Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors, I, okay, Adam and Eve, our remote ancestors, was the idea that they could be, quote, like gods. They could set up their own as if they had created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside of God, apart from God. The reason why it can never succeed is this. God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now hear this. 
Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel, is the fuel or spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There's no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own in our own way without bothering about religion. And for him, he doesn't mean religion like, you know, okay, I say seven Hail Marys or five Hail Marys, I go back and I get drunk. For him, he had discovered a relationship with Christ. Now, Eldridge later on fleshes that out a lot more. He's, Eldridge is arguing for this relational intimacy with God. And, and the confession that I think we've all probably wanted to make is, I think I've missed that a lot in life, right? And so this book has been like a wake-up call for me is God desires greater intimacy, and I know it verbally, and I know it theologically, but I don't know it always in here. I don't live it out in here. And so this journey that we're on here, he says, you know, we can't get it without religion, and he doesn't mean American religion right now. He says, God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. It doesn't exist. It's a ghost. It's a seven-headed llama. It's like, it's just not there. There's no such thing. That is the key to history. That the only real source of happiness and joy and peace in the entire cosmos is Christ. And Bonhoeffer, the cool thing in Bonhoeffer, if you've read his stuff, and for some reason in seminary, I got sucked into the world of Bonhoeffer. And I read everything, even his letters from prison, I read. I was, now I was at an evangelical seminary, so you can imagine my professors, ooh, you know, like they're not all fond fans of Bonhoeffer because he, he sort of took some of the theology of Germany in that way, like uh, the earth is millions and millions of years old, and he embraced a lot of that stuff. But one thing I know beyond a shadow of doubt, he got the church right, the community. He got that right. That was his doctoral dissertation. He also got this whole idea here that, that you think about that Christ the Sinner was his Christology book. After he died, his students took all their notes, put them together, and published, and it was Christ the Sinner. And he got it right. That if he's not the sinner, we miss it. We lose it, whatever it is. Or, or in the words of Eldridge, we ache. There's an ache in our heart. So what I'd love for you to do right now is to, to take a moment, talk about, and we're gonna have to do it really quick because I think tables of two and three, we would get through it, but tables of five or six, y'all are gonna, we're gonna need to move on it. But are you tempted to ignore God because of your strengths? In other words, I've sort of become independent because I'm so good at this. And then what is the balance that we have to find as men between accepting the giftedness that we have using the giftedness that we have, and walking in faith. There's a tension there. Accepting, God, you've given me this gift. Using that gift, and then walking in faith, and not becoming an idol with it, but keeping it in its right spot, or as C.S. Lewis said, keeping it as a, as a secondary thing. The first thing is walking with Jesus. The second thing is our giftedness. So take, take about four minutes, five minutes, and answer that question. Let's turn back. So ra wrapping up on the ache, I, man, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of phenomenal 
conversation I, I wish I wrestle with, and Stephen, I've talked about, you know, an hour is a very tight amount of time. An hour and a half is almost what we need, and yet we also know that because of work and family and everything else, is an hour is about all any of us have to give, it seems. And so uh, because of that, our hope and our prayer is by sitting around tables, a lot of y'all have swapped cell phone numbers and email numbers, and our hope is that you have these conversations, conversations about real things, not that the politics are wrong to talk about, not that the economy shouldn't be discussed, not that the Astros' amazing best season in the history of the organization should not be celebrated and discussed on a regular basis, but we are famished in our souls for real conversations with real people about a real God and real life. And so I hope that this will just be something you take with you and that you will continue the dialogue with one another. We all need it. I need it. Steve and I were talking about that the other day. He was like, hey, do you have a, like a, who's your group? Like we, we had a great conversation on that. Let, let me uh, jump here to page 152 in, in the section winter. It says, everything we do has a reason behind it, a motive. Within the Christian community, we tend to focus on behavior. Isn't that right? We focus on behavior and that's right and that's wrong. Of course, what we do matters, and he goes on to say an affair and stealing and being unforgiven, those things matter in life. They have deep, deep consequences. But he said, however, according to Jesus, holiness is a matter of the heart. And then he goes and he looks at the Sermon on the Mount, and he said, hey, you've externally kept the law. You didn't murder anyone. But in your heart, guess what? You've hated your brother, so you're guilty. And oh, you've honored the law because you didn't have an affair outside, but in your heart, you've dishonored God and you're walking in unholiness because in your heart, you're lusting and coveting someone else's wife, right? And so in, in, a, in a lot of ways, in other words, our lives in a very real sense are ginormous icebergs. We've used this analogy before. But they're, they're icebergs, but the difference on this iceberg is only God peers beneath the surface. Only God can see it. It's why he tells us not to judge people eternally, because we can't see their heart. All we see are the externals. That's why he says in the, in the, in the book of James, he says, hey, literally, don't treat people based off of the exterior clothing and jewelry that they wear because you can sort of get a head fake and you can appear better than you really are. You can appear different than you really are. And there's a word we use for that is integrity, a wholeness, a whole heart, not a fractional heart. God doesn't want 0.96% of your heart and he doesn't want 96% of your heart. What percent does he want? A hundred percent. He doesn't want us to be half obedient. He wants our obedience. He doesn't want a half relationship with Eric any more than my wife wants a half relationship with Eric. Imagine going to the altar at your wedding day and you tell your wife to be, I pledge to love and serve and honor and protect Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, but Saturday nights I reserve for myself and my own selfish pleasure. I do. Right? I mean, we don't, we don't do that. We, 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 we shouldn't do that. I mean, if you do that and your wife marries you, well, good for you. But I'm just telling you, that's not, that's, that's not 
that's not what we're called to do as men that model a covenant God. And marriage is that highest covenant we enter into in many, many ways. Um, I'm going to skip this table time. It's, you've got the, the listing there, but I, I need a confession. When I begin to think about my motives, like why am I in ministry? And why before I was in ministry did I start a nonprofit? And before that, why was I a teacher and a coach? And before that, why did I run a boys home for troubled teens? I mean, who does that for fun? And then before that, I was like a vocational slut. I mean, I pulled for the Democrat Party in Texas. I valet parked cars. I painted stripes in parking lots. That's fun, especially in the summertime in Fort Worth, right? Before that, I was an exercise physiologist. And before that, I was a PE director at a special needs school in Tennessee. Like that is the most jacked up resume you could ever send somebody. Here, I'm laser focused. You know, it's like, it's like an automatic confession that you're scattered, right? I have no boundaries or focus in life, but do you want to hire me? And so when I get to that area of examining my motives and my heart, I, I feel like this guy right here. Who recognize, who is this? Jack Nicholson, what's the movie? The Shining. And at the very end of the movie, he gets lost in a maze and he freezes to death. That's a, a, a nickel sickle right there. So, um, so anyway... We, we get into this area of self-examination and we sort of freeze up. We get paralyzed. And I don't think God intended us to live in fear. I don't think God intended for us to second guess every decision that we make in life. I don't. I think he said, my sheep will know me. They'll hear my voice. They'll know my voice. They'll follow me. So, so the question begins, how do we begin to really let our hearts be examined if we can't even see beneath the surface of the iceberg? And I had a mentor, Stuart Latimer, and I, and I Googled him to see if he was still alive. In college, 1985, 86, 87, 88, Stuart Latimer was the pastor of a church in Greenville, South Carolina. It was a small Bible church off of the main drag. Most students didn't go to it. I went to it, and in four years, we went through the book of Romans, verse by verse by verse. I mean, that was it. Every, not every, two Friday nights a month, he would open up his house, and it wasn't a big house, and he'd have a rocking chair by the fireplace, and in the wintertime and the fall, he'd have a fire in it, and you could come over to his house, and he'd feed you dinner, so I always went over for the food, but he also would let you ask any question about life, dating, marriage, theology, scripture, ask anything. And I remember in a conversation with him, he had talked about our motives. He had talked about that we judge the outside, God judges the heart. And he, and he said, so what are we to do with that? And I found myself asking the same question right here, that I was being frozen in areas of my life by over-examination and anxiety. I don't know if y'all ever reflect so much and wonder if you're making the right decision or not, but if you carry that burden, here's what he told me to do. He said, at the beginning of every day and the end of every day, pray Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Ask the one that can see beneath the surface to search your heart, to examine your motives, to see if there's anything wicked or evil inside, to bring it to the surface, to repent, and let him lead you in his way. 
instead of me trying to figure it out and examine and cross-examine and, and six, you know, do an Eisenhower box to make some decision, I need to go to the one that made me that knows me more than anyone else. I need to walk with God. I need to walk with God. And so where is our hope then if just God examines us and God shows us stuff? Then where's our hope? And our hope goes back to Ezekiel. It goes all the way back to Ezekiel when God promised something through him in a very prophetic word, something that made no sense to the Israelites at the time. They had no concept of this idea of new heart and spirit, and they, they, that did not connect. It, it, I guarantee you all of the rabbis like were scampering around. What does that mean? You know, trying to figure it out. He says, I will give you a new heart. This is Ezekiel 36, 26. And I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart. How many of y'all feel like sometimes you have a stony, stubborn heart? I'll tell you, when I was wrestling with pornography, I had more than a stony, stubborn heart. I needed God to take like the five million gallons of Roundup and just start spraying inside my heart because all the weeds were there growing in any crack of my life. Weeds were just sprouting up. Man, I had a absolute stony, stubborn heart. But instead of that, instead of shaming us here, instead of guilting us, instead of destroying us, he promises to give us a what? A tender, responsive heart, a new heart. Not shame, life, sanctification, joy. And the cool thing is these aren't just words from a dead prophet. A little more than 2,000 years ago, they get fulfilled and so today we have to learn to receive and walk in that reality, the new heart reality. And that process of walking in this is also this idea that brings healing to us. And so on page 157, it says, inner healing might be described as sanctifying the past, inviting Jesus back into the events, the times, the places, the relationships, because for one reason or another, he was not invited in at the time. For me, a lot of those times were pre-Christ. And then the, the sadness of my life is some of them are post-Christ, right? I mean, the wounds in my life have been inflicted on me by others. But I think I've done at least 51% of the damage to myself. I take controlling share of the company I have responsibility for decisions that I made that brought great hurt into my life. Yes. I think, yeah, I think so. I think there is that idea of we've, we've got tablets of stone. Jesus even references this. And now we have hearts of flesh and we're not children of the law anymore. We're adopted now. So we've, I hate to use a children's book, but, but he's, he's handled us like the Velveteen Rabbit so that we've become real. We've become what he envisioned us at the beginning, which is intimate sons and daughters of the Most High God that walk with him and talk with him and will spend eternity with him. 
but we don't wait till then to live that life. We walk in that intimacy now. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so that idea of old covenant, new covenant is here, that new heart, you know? There, there wasn't anything in Israel. They had no concept of this. I mean, they really, really, truly didn't. Um, so in here, it says, for one reason or another, uh, Jesus was not invited in at the time. I love that thought, sanctifying the past. Now that we are walking with Jesus, and men, now that we are walking with Jesus, we can invite him into our past and walk with him there too. Ask Jesus about, about uh, ask Jesus what it's about. Invite him in, and while you do, answer this question. When you felt like this, when have you felt like this before? Think back over your life. You will see a theme. Now, the process and the definition of discipleship has always been, there's different definitions. There's definitions that mean following Jesus, uh, loving God and loving others, right? These are ways we express discipleship. An area that I, I lean into, I'm not the originator of that, but it, for me, discipleship is bringing every area of life under the lordship of Christ. Anything that helps me bring an area of life underneath his lordship is discipleship. Because as I am doing that, I am in the wake of Jesus. I am in behind him. He's breaking the waves for me, and I'm behind him, literally skiing behind him and with him. And there's an expression that I've heard a lot, and you might have heard it a lot, and it is that Jesus is my, what? Lord and Savior, right? So let me ask two questions. If we say he is Savior, what do we mean by that? Somebody. What do you mean? If you say he's your Savior, what does that mean? Yeah, save us from penalty. He saves our soul from the penalty of sin and death. He's rescued us. Brad? Yes. And, and, and that treacherous life is the life of self-inflicted trauma because Paul had externally inflicted trauma. I mean, you read what happened to him, and you're like, oh, he's been stoned, he's been beaten, he's been snake bit and shipwrecked and hard-pressed and at times wanted to even give up, but he pressed on. He wasn't saying, you know, I blew up my marriage because I was looking at pornography, and then I lost my job because I came in late because I was hungover, and then I, he, he wasn't talking about self-inflicted stuff, right? He was talking about other-inflicted stuff. So if that's what it means to say he's our Savior, well, what does it mean if we say he is our Lord? I mean, what are we really saying there when we say, Jesus, you're my Lord? What is that? And have y'all ever used that expression before? Maybe you've prayed, said, Lord, uh, we call it the Lord's Prayer. The Lord is my shepherd. What does it mean then if we're saying, Jesus, you're my Lord? What does that mean? What was that, John? He owns us. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's one way of saying it, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, Lord is a large word. It's four letters. It's not profane, but it is large in its concept. That umbrella spans everything I can think of. It's a powerful notion. It's a notion of authority, dominion, rule and reign. So we, we won't ever meet a Lord 
on this earth ever again. Like, like Jesus was here, but we won't run into anyone else that will stake a claim to be Lord of all. We won't. I mean, it really means there's no limits to his authority. There's no limits to his power. There's no limits to his dominion. And so what does that have to do with healing and healing our past? And I love this expression here. Abraham Kuyper said this, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Not a selfish pig, mine and get away from it. No, it's mine so that I may give it. It's mine so that I may lead you to it. It's mine so that I can unleash something beautiful in your life and in your life and in my life. I'm here to bless you. I sought you out. I paid your price. I'm your savior. Let me be your Lord. I've got something better for you. I will lead you in the way everlasting. Simply put, Christ deserves the rightful place in our life. And that means in our past, in our present, and in our future. And so the question becomes, we like Jesus to be the Lord of the past, right? Yeah, forgive me, Lord, right? I mean, when I was shoplifting as a teenager, Lord, forgive me when I'm drunk and I drove my mom's car into someone else's pickup truck on a New Year's Eve, Lord, you're the God of the past. Forgive me. Amen? We also sort of, we like the way, way, way out distant future, right? Lord, I want to I end, end well, you know? I, I want to be in heaven with you. No sin, no suffering, no, you know, no sickness, but there's something about the Lord of the present that I kick against. I mean, right in the heat of the moment. It's that desire. I'm like, well, I can just click on that website right there, you know? My wife's asleep. Kids are in bed. Pastor Greg's not right here. You know, I, I, can, just, I can just do this. I can just do this right now. No one, no one is going to know. The problem is God's not a no one. He's a someone. He's not an it. He's a person. He's not just a person. He's a powerful person. He's not just a powerful person. He's the Lord. He has dominion. He has power and presence on every speck of the cosmos. And so if he's going to be the God of the future, bringing us hope, and healing and victory over death, if, if he's going to be the God of the past, giving us forgiveness, redemption over those things, we've got to man up and we've got to walk with him in the present. I mean, we're so much like Adam and Eve, aren't we? As, as C.S. Lewis calls them, our, our recent or distant ancestors, you know? So we think we know better than God. We think that Eric Reed should be the CEO of Eric Reed Incorporated, and then I know what I need better than God knows what I need. I mean, I'm very in touch with what I want. And if I could just get what I want and get out of my way so I can get what I want, my life would be better because I'm CEO of Eric Reed Incorporated. Well, that's what Adam and Eve did. They played that card out, and by the way, it did not end well. 
And I don't know about you, but I know what I can make of my life. I'm on a, I'm on a little quest here. And I think you're on the same one. I want to know what God will make of my life. I want to know what would happen if I just turn it over to him. I hate to quote a Carrie Underwood song, but if Jesus took the wheel, I wonder, I wonder what would happen, right? And I, I love this. I love, I love what Hudson Taylor said. And let this sink in. He said, Christ is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. Christ is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. Those words come hard. Those words are hard to hear, and yet they're also very comforting at the same time. I mean, take a moment. I, well, we're not going to because it's 720. Um, I'm sharing that because our hope in the future abounds when we allow him to be the Lord of the past and the Lord of the present, not just the Lord of the future. And that's the space where I believe brotherhood and friendship sit. We are to remind each other that God has our past covered. That if you have a brother, if you have a friend, another man that's walking around with her head hung low in shame and guilt from past sins, we speak life over that. We fight for that brother. We pray God's grace over them. We remind them of the cross and the empty tomb to know and to rest in what Jesus has done. Amen. But in the present, we also fight for each other. We remind each other that there is a greater yes, that the short-term pleasure is not worth the exchange, that we don't want to be trading around our birthright for a bowl of porridge. Take an Old Testament story. So the only way we're going to walk with God is if we invite God in if we submit to him, if we trust in him, if we trust his love, we trust his motives, we trust his power, we trust his authority, then we will walk with him. And the enemy knows if he can get us to doubt any of that, his goodness, his power, or his presence, we won't follow after God. We won't walk. We'll read a book about walking with God, right? Well, I mean, we'll, we'll, we can talk and quote something from Eldridge, but we won't walk with him. And so coming back here to this idea of he's the Lord of all or he's not Lord at all, is that, that I said it gave also hope, right? And I want you to hear the words of Paul. And I cling to this verse a lot. I mean, since I became a Christian, this has been one of the verses I've like held on to because I, I bring a jacked up past. I have a jacked up present from time to time. And I realize that I desperately need God. But here's the deal. My hope is not Eric Reed clinging onto a edge of a helicopter skid with one hand flying out of a fiery world. And I just got to hang on and make it. That's not my hope. That's not my hope. I would have let go a long time ago. God's got me. God's holding me. God's saying, trust me more, Eric. Let go. Just let, just, just let me hold you now. And Paul said this in Philippians 1. He says, I am somewhat confident about the statement I'm getting ready to make. 
I am 51% solid on what I'm getting ready to write. No. I am unbelievably confident. I am 100% certain. There is no doubt or wavering. I am sure of this. What? What? Tell us. What are you so confident about, Paul? He said that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Until the day of Christ Jesus. In my life, I cling to that. He will complete his good work in you. He will complete his good work in me. He will complete his good work in us. Areas of abuse that I would rather not disclose in public, that I'd rather not even think about sometimes, I'm going to let him in on that. Areas of shame and guilt because of the present, because of what I did last week or, or six months ago or one hour ago, I'm, I'm going to let them in on that. I'm going to invite them into that. Unanswered questions of why, loved ones that have passed away, infertility, stillborn kids, broken friendships, jobs that didn't work out, finances that went south. I got to let them into that. I'm going to invite them into that. I'm going to say, Lord, you come in to that. I let you in to that area of my life. And this morning, I want us to consider what areas of life do we really need Christ to come into? What areas of life have we kept him out of? And it might have been because we were afraid, or it could have been because we just weren't aware that there was a God that could have been there, that could have done something. I don't know. God knows. God knows your heart. I mean, God's peering underneath all of your activity and seeing the motive. He sees the heart. And again, it should terrify us and it should give us great confidence and great boldness because guess what? He's seen it already and you're still alive. He's already seen it and he knew it and he went to the cross for it, already knowing it. I mean, to me, if I knew how bad Judas was, I would have sliced his feet off and not washed him if I knew what he was getting ready to do and Jesus knew what he was getting ready to do. In fact, he said it later at dinner. Yeah, I know one of you is going to betray me. I don't think Jesus didn't know. He knew and he loved him anyway. He came to seek and to save the lost. And so when we think about that, will we let him in? Because here's the reality. There is a law written over every atom, every particle in the cosmos. And it was written by God himself, the divine creator, the divine lawgiver, the Lord of all and it is the law of the harvest, and none of us will avoid it. None of us can change it. None of us will escape it. We won't. And here's what he says. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he will reap. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap corruption from the flesh. But the one who sows to the Spirit that invites God into today and yesterday and tomorrow, the guy that confesses sin quickly and repents of it as he stumbles and as he falls, but he doesn't lay down in it, he doesn't feel sorry for himself, the, the, the guy that, that prays for his brothers in Christ and encourages them, the guy that receives that same encouragement from another, 
that sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. And then Paul said this, knowing about the condition of our heart, so we must not get tired of doing good. Paul got tired of doing good? We could get tired of doing good? Have you ever been tired of doing good? Have you ever waited on the Lord and prayed for something? And you want to just give up? Well, you know what, God? I, I did it your way, and it ain't working. I'm going to go back because at least I had fun when I did it my way. I mean, I've told him that. And I'm still here. <laughs> I mean, I'm still here. And I told God that. And he's forgiven me. He's walked me through that. He loves me in spite of that. For we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. The enemy knows that we get tired of striving, we get tired of doing, we get tired of trying, and this morning we are together to rekindle our hearts to do what Eldridge's book is about, to walk with God, to stir one another up to righteousness and good deeds, to spark the fire of faith inside of each one of us. And what that means is to let Christ walk into our past and into the present so that we would be able to walk into his future so this morning, I, I want to I call you all to that. I want to pray that over you right now. And then I want to give you an announcement about something we're getting ready to do, sort of an end of the summer uh, little celebration dinner at Steve's house. Um, and I think that you've got all the printouts there, so you probably have all the details already. But let me pray over you. Father God, I thank you for these men. And I thank you for them being here this morning. I thank you, God, that you were here, that when we opened our eyes, God, you didn't like, oh my gosh, it's, uh, it's warrior's heart today. Uh, I overslept. I, I, I got to race across the cosmos to get there. God, no, you, you're here. We walk in, you're here. You're with us and you're here. You're in us and you're around us. And God, I know that you've spoken in my heart. I know you've convicted me and you've encouraged me. And I believe you've done the same for each man here. Lord God, you know, you know the areas of our heart. You see it as clear as day to you. We guess, we, I try to journal it out. I, I go to a counselor to get some insight. I talk to a friend. Hey, what, what do you think? Or, Lord, you, you just know it. You see it. I ask God that you would do what only you can do in the hearts of each man here. God, we wanna walk with you. Teach us and show us how. Show us our next step today, our next obedient step with you, Lord. We don't want to walk with the law, God. We don't, we don't want to be legalist here. God, we want to walk in your peace and your joy. We want to walk in the fruit of your spirit. We want to abide with you. And we just know that our heart is prone to wonder, that our affections, God, they get twisted around some days. And so, Lord, we just confess we need you to align our hearts with you. And God, we want to let some other men into our life that they may help us encourage us and we may help encourage them, that we together may walk with you uprightly. Have your way, strengthen these men, bless these men, use these men. Let them be warriors for your kingdom, God. We do not fight flesh and blood. It's powers and principalities and demons, rulers, God, that have been established that your kingdom has victory over. Your blood has authority over and we, God, want to expanse and push away and carve out spots of your kingdom's grace and mercy and truth in the lives of the men and women around us. We love you and we thank you. It's in Christ's name I pray. We are a chosen generation.
Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the Garden Room of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. Have a great day.